0: This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, making ingredients that are the backbone of proper nutrition for athletes. And it turns out, when you're looking for ingredients that are really good for athletes, you tend to turn up ingredients that are really good for lots and lots of people. This week, it's whole grain sorghum, a product you've probably heard of in passing as an ingredient in other meals, but which you may not know is a staple food in India and Africa. In fact, when you start looking into it, sorghum is pretty cool. It's not only a really good source of protein, fiber, and antioxidants, it's also completely gluten-free. So if you're gluten intolerant or have celiacs, or just have someone coming over for dinner who is, you can replace stuff like noodles or rice with sorghum. Or if you're baking, you can replace flour with sorghum flour, also available from Bob's. In fact, sorghum flour is actually more dense with nutrients, so even if you're not gluten sensitive, it might be worth looking into head over to bobsredmill.com slash outside and enter for a chance to win some fun bobs redmill goodies a subscription to outside a book from our collection and a brand new backpack one winner will be selected at random each month that's bobsredmill.com outside from outside magazine and prx this is sweat science stories of human endurance a few years ago journalist megan brown started noticing something strange in her local ultra running community
1: i had a couple of friends who were struggling with something that seemed um kind of unplaceable basically they would do really really well for like two or three years and then totally fall off the map
0: Um, Megan was working it outside, living in Santa Fe, and hanging around with elite runners. And these guys were mysteriously slipping down the ranks, right when they should have been at the top of their game.
1: You have a really successful athlete who's like, top of the podium, breaking records for about two years, maybe three, and all of a sudden, they're not. Like, it's not stomach, it's not an injury, it's just they don't seem capable of performing at the same level anymore.
0: And then they just disappear we're from just the sport. So Megan started poking around, asking the runners she knew if they'd felt or observed similar loss of ability. And a
1: few of them said yes, a few of them pointed me in the direction of some runners that um, were
0: dealing with this. A strange fatigue was infecting the ultra running community, like a virus, leaving runners confused with symptoms that seemed all over the place. These
1: bizarre sort of leg cramps, loss of appetite, diminished libido, weird heart arrhythmias, debilitating staleness in your legs.
0: Some runners would just try to push through it. Convinced their poor performances meant they weren't training hard enough. Others would lay off for a few days or a week, but nothing seemed to work. Worse, no one really felt like they could talk about it. And most doctors could only shrug. After all, they're still running 80 miles a week. Test results were all coming back negative how sick could they really be so megan kept digging and in 2016 published an article on outside called running on empty which explored not only who was falling to this mystery ailment but why and she discovered it had a name overtraining syndrome
1: one of the exercise researchers that i spoke to said it's the scariest thing that he's ever seen in, in like in his years of studying athletes
0: At its most basic, overtraining syndrome, or OTS, seems pretty straightforward. Go too hard for too long without enough rest, and things start to go wrong. Ignore the signs and keep pushing, and things start to go catastrophic. But that explanation belies a question that has confounded researchers for decades. Basically, no one really knows what's happening to tip an athlete over an edge that they can't recover from.
2: There's a ton of research out there on overtraining, and there's been... You know, dozens and dozens and dozens of studies, at least going back to the '90s.
0: This is outside columnist Alex Hutchinson, our guide throughout the Sweat Science series.
2: Uh, the reason it seems like there isn't a lot of research on it is that none of it reaches any good conclusions. So it's not that that this this is some new thing that is, has just emerged. Um, it's just that we still don't really know a lot about it. But people have been trying to figure out what overtraining is for for quite a long time now.
0: So OTS is sort of a boogeyman for endurance athletes. A ghost of a sickness that leaves you a shadow of your former self, with few answers and fewer options. And while Megan first noticed OTS in the ultra-running community, those aren't the only athletes it can affect. Anyone who's seriously devoted to their sport, who takes a more-is-more approach to training, and constantly pushes to the edge, might come to find themselves completely, inexplicably fatigued. What do you do when your whole life has been about competing at an elite level? and suddenly you don't have the energy to pull yourself out of bed. To tell that story, I'm going to hand things off to producer Robbie Carver. And to learn more about what happens to the body during OTS, we're going to stick with our habit of diving into an obscure sport you may not be all that familiar with.
3: Yeah, so the sport of biathlon pairs cross-country skiing, so this high aerobic and anaerobic demand sport, with marksmanship. Um, or in the case of biathlon, um, shooting a 22.
4: This is Corinne Malcolm, former racer for the U.S. National Biathlon Team.
3: And so it's very popular in the U.S. every four years when we see it on TV during the Olympics, and we're like, wow, that's really cool. Um, And I love seeing it grow in popularity every four years and then kind of like fade into the background again.
4: The biathlon originated in Scandinavia, where soldiers prided themselves on their ability to shoot accurately while on skis. There's a few different types of events, but basically, competitors skate-ski as fast as they can around a course with a rifle attached to their back. And every time they complete a lap, they ski into a gun range and attempt to shoot down targets, each a little larger than the diameter of a golf ball. Miss a target, get a penalty. Either a fixed time or a penalty loop that you have to ski before getting back onto the main course.
3: So you have to not only be an incredibly good skier, but you also have to be able to settle down quickly enough on the range to be a fast and accurate shooter.
4: It's all-out physical intensity, paired with precision motor skills, and arguably the most demanding endurance sport in the Winter Olympics. Imagine sprinting as hard as you can, And then immediately trying to thread a needle on your first try.
3: The goal is to just be so efficient and so smooth and have it just be clockwork. um, Because you want to be, you know, on the mat and off the mat in 25 seconds, um, which is crazy.
4: Corinne began skiing when she and her family moved to Hayward, Wisconsin, just as she was beginning high school. She fit right in and, like lots of motivated high school kids, was doing a bit of everything. Choir and band, musicals, and both running and cross-country skiing. And really, she was a mediocre skier at best. More bowl-in-a-china-shop than graceful swan. But then, in the summer before her junior year, she attended a training camp with the Olympic Development Group. And that changed everything.
3: I walked out of that camp like convinced that I was going to make an Olympic team, and skiing was the only thing that mattered.
4: For many of us, that kind of teenage conviction would have lasted about as long as our first crush. But not Corinne. That year, she studied abroad in Latvia to train for 10 months with their Olympic ski coaches. When she returned to the U.S., she crushed it, winning the Wisconsin State meet, making the junior national team, and receiving All-American honors. Then after two years skiing for Montana State University, she was approached by a junior development coach for the US biathlon team.
3: But he was like, You're skate skiing really well, like do you think you could shoot a gun? And I was like, I don't know, like maybe. And he's like, Well, why don't you like why don't you try?
4: So Corinne dropped out of college and drove to Fort Kent, Maine, where the US Junior Development Biathlon team was training. For the first time in her skiing career, Corinne had nothing to do but train. She learned how to shoot a rifle, how to ritualize her breathing to steady her heartbeat before a shot.
3: So you go... And it's on that cut-off exhale that you then kind of take that next shot in.
4: And under the watchful eyes of careful coaches, her skiing improved rapidly.
3: Um, I won junior national trials, which meant that I had a, a paid a paid spot on the junior junior national team to go to Junior Worlds.
4: By the end of that winter, she was named to the senior national team. She moved to the Olympic Training Center in Lake Placid, New York, and became the team's youngest member. The risk she took dropping out of school to pursue skiing full-time had paid off.
3: I, like, felt like I had taken that next step on the pipeline and dove in, like, headfirst, was, like, so gung-ho to make a good impression, to, like, prove that I like had earned my spot on the team.
4: This should have been the moment in Corinne's story where everything came together and she flourished. Her hard work, dedication, and willingness to risk it all paying off with a spot in the Olympics just a few years away. But instead, this is the moment where the clouds started gathering and the skies began to darken. And it began with a single directive from her new coaches.
3: The only goal from the coaches was for me to keep up. And I was like, I was willing to, you know, like that was, I was like, okay, like I'm going to keep up.
4: And we need to pause here for a moment, because in order to understand overtraining, we need to understand how training works, period. And why being told to just keep up was really, really poor advice. Imagine your fitness is a small foam buoy floating in the water. That waterline, that's your base level of fitness. To improve, you have to put stress on your body. Whether that's lifting weights, running, or cycling, you can imagine any hard activity, any fatigue, as a force pulling that buoy underwater. Then you rest. Let go of the buoy and it shoots back up to the original waterline. What's more, if you get adequate rest, your fitness buoy pops up above the water at least for a while. That's called compensation, meaning your body adapts to handle a higher level of stress. And if you apply a new load right before that buoy begins to descend again, the buoy will rise even higher after the next rest cycle. Do this over and over, and your fitness builds. But here's the catch. If you don't allow your body enough rest, and you apply more stress on your body, It's like grabbing that buoy before it's reached the surface and pulling it down deeper than before. Now, you need even more rest just to return to your base fitness, let alone reach compensation. Repeat this enough times. Pull your buoy deeper and deeper and you'll hit the bottom of the ocean. So training is a bit of a Goldilocks problem. Train just hard enough and rest just long enough and you'll get better, more fit train too hard, or rest too little, and the fatigue pulls you farther and farther underwater, leading to underperformance, illness, and injury. Which is why it's absolutely essential for any high-volume athlete to be on an individualized training plan. What might propel one athlete upwards will just drag another down.
3: I was training with the men's team, and I remember being like, hey, Lowell, what do you have today? And he's like, oh, I have, you know... X number of eight-minute intervals, and I was like, oh, me too, and, and, like, I'm 20 and Lowell is 30 and is on, like, you know, is the men's, the men's national team, and I'm, I'm doing the exact same workload as these guys, um, and that makes no sense, like, as, as a coach, like, that makes, that makes zero sense to have, like, this cookie-cutter program that's somehow supposed to be enough for, the high performing men on the team and also like your like younger junior female athletes. And so I was slipping through the cracks kind of during that whole thing.
4: It's important to note here that there's a certain type of athlete more prone to overtraining than others. The kind that when told to do eight interval repeats, do ten. And Corinne, she was that type of athlete.
3: So I'd say that one of my like biggest strengths as an athlete is I have no understanding of my own limitations. Um, and I'm pretty stubborn, and I'm very competitive. But without that being reined in by someone, it's really easy to to have all those strengths be your biggest downfall.
4: Rather than back off from workouts she could feel were too intense, she dug in.
3: Like I wasn't gonna cut a workout, and I wasn't gonna do less, and I wasn't gonna question why I was doing what I was doing, because those were all like threats to my pipeline.
4: But we need to be careful here. Because while Corinne may have been overtraining, at this point, she was still a far cry from overtraining syndrome. OTS exists on the far end of a continuum of stress on the body. Because in addition to the normal stair-step improvement we talked about earlier, there's another idea, called functional overreach, which means an athlete intentionally overcooks it for a training block. By the end of that
2: sort of block, by the end of, let's say, a week-long training camp, uh, you y- you don't feel like a million bucks your legs are heavy and there's a good chance that your times in workouts or your times uh, whether if you know if you're running or cycling whatever the case may be that your pace is lower you're working just as hard but you've actually gotten slower which seems counterproductive but if you've if you've judged it right then you ease up for a few days and you're going to find that then you make the big gain that, that
4: so and that, so that's called functional overreaching hit this is, balance correctly And your fitness buoy launches out of the water in what's called supercompensation, giving you an extra boost to your fitness. But push a bit too hard or fail to take enough rest, and you've entered non-functional overreach.
2: Three days later, your legs are still dead. And a week later, you're not faster, you're just barely getting back to where you were two weeks before. And it, and you're not better off than you were. You, you you've essentially wasted that training block because you pushed yourself too deep into the hole. And that's so that's non-functional overreaching.
4: So even though Corinne was definitely being pushed too hard in training, the fact that she was able to get just enough adequate rest did mean that for the first winter, she continued to improve, staying just barely on the functional side of overreaching.
3: I made an IBU Cup team, um, which is kind of like the minor leagues of the World Cup for biathlon. Um, was showing a lot of promise and like had a pretty good year, like raced well at senior nationals at the end of the year, Um, was by all means like keeping up.
4: But athletes should only attempt this kind of functional overreach a few times a year, right as they're trying to hit peak fitness for their most important races. Corinne, in contrast, was putting herself there over and over again. And her body could only keep up for so long and she knew it.
3: But I did realize at that point too, that I like needed to do something a little different. Like I could tell that I wasn't super, I, like I wasn't finding a lot of satisfaction in like this keeping up notion.
4: But there's more to this than just dissatisfaction. If there's anything we've learned during the Sweat Science series, is that the mind is essential to fitness. And if there's anything researchers have learned about OTS, it's that consistent mental negativity is the proverbial canary in the coal mine.
5: Yeah, sure. So, um, my name is Shona Halson. My professional title is uh, Associate Professor at, at the Australian Catholic University.
4: Professor Halson is one of the leading experts on recovery science, and she got to be that way by first studying over training in cyclists.
5: Participants, Uh, obviously, ethically, we can't push people to to OTS. Uh, So we did a series of studies uh, with cyclists around really high intensified training. And we looked at lots of different hormonal measures, heart rate, um, subjective measures, sleep, lots of different things, um, immune function.
4: She was trying to see if she could pinpoint a biological marker that would indicate overtraining. And she did find a consistent indicator, but not in the body, in the mind
5: sort of ironic that we spent tens of thousands of pounds i was in the uk at the time on all these interesting measures we did stable isotope infusion to look at carbohydrate metabolism we spent some money (laughs) and interestingly enough the best predictor was uh what they put down on pen and paper in terms of how they felt
4: that's great so so it's it was more about like on the the chart of sad face to smiley face versus what uh what biological markers you could pinpoint?
5: Yes, exactly.
4: This correlation was so strong that it became one of the three co-occurring indicators that would point toward overtraining. A decrease in performance combined with consistently negative moods that would last for several months.
5: So it's a retrospective kind of, okay, you're still, you know, really suffering at four or five months um, time frame. Okay, we think you've probably got overtraining syndrome.
4: By the end of her first season at the senior level, it's safe to say that Corinne was reaching the early stages of overtraining syndrome. Physically, she was performing well, but her mind simply couldn't kick into gear. Even though she got renamed to the senior team and was posed to race at the World Cup level, living and breathing training was beginning to crush her spirit. Something had to change.
3: I realized that summer, the summer of 2012, that I I need a little something different. So I move out of the Olympic Training Center into like a one-room house, hut, shack thing, um, like up the street from the Olympic Training Center.
4: Perhaps she thought the problem wasn't how much she was training, but that she didn't have anything outside of training to give her a sense of balance. And this is a common issue with OTS, because it can manifest in so many subtle ways. Athletes often search to place the issue in something concrete. Corinne placed the blame for her mental fatigue on how all-consuming life at the Olympic Center was. Moving out was an attempt to get some separation from her athletic identity. But it didn't help, and Corinne's general mental fatigue began to spiral into full-blown depression, the kind that made sleep incredibly difficult, but getting out of bed feel impossible.
3: Like, this is only a year into being on the senior national team. And there were points that summer where, like, getting out of bed, like, was a victory.
4: It should go without saying that getting adequate sleep is essential to recovery, and that poor sleep is correlated with OTS. Corinne's workouts began to feel harder, and even the easy days were a struggle. It's a sign of fatigue that Dr. Housing calls uncoupling.
5: So for an example is you might be able to sit um, fairly comfortably at a certain pace for a certain duration, If you know, if you're a runner. You've just, it, this is it's just sort of you, you, you're naturally normally able to do this, but all of a sudden that starts to feel harder. So your perception of effort kind of uncouples um, from your, your physiology and all of a sudden you either can't do what you previously did or you're doing what you previously did but, gosh, it feels hard.
4: And for Corinne? Gosh, everything felt hard.
3: My easy heart rate was way too high. Like, if I went for an easy run, it would skyrocket. But then when I would try to do intervals, my heart rate would be low. Like, it wouldn't be resting levels, but it wouldn't be, you know, at my threshold heart rate or at my VO2 max heart rate. It would be much low. It would be blunted. It'd be much lower than that. I remember I didn't want to tell my coaches that I was struggling because I did. I felt like it was like a constant like, every day was a test and I like needed to pass the test every day.
4: And she would be damned if she was going to show weakness or fail or even admit to herself that anything was wrong besides her own motivation.
3: Like, you're like, well, obviously I'm just not training hard enough. Like, that's why I don't feel good. It's not because I'm tired. It's not because I haven't rested. It's not because I'm not fresh. Um... It's because' I'm, I'm out of shape. Like I was like, okay, like clearly, clearly I can't cut corners. like I need to do like they say 20 hours. I'm training 20 hours this week. Um, and that like that has repercussions.
2: And so often the cycle is self-reinforcing that you're 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 maybe on the verge of overtraining or maybe you're just in functional overreaching. But you conclude that this means you're getting unfit rather than that you're overtired. And so you push harder. And, that, and that's that's where I think a lot of people, people who end up digging the deepest holes for themselves, often do it because they, they sense something is wrong and their response is to work harder rather than recover more.
0: We'll be right back. So earlier we heard about sorghum and how you can replace other types of flour with sorghum flour. But there's actually a more interesting use for it. If you go look, all over the Bob's Red Mill website, if you're looking at stuff related to sorghum, they have information about something called sorghum popcorn. Oh, they're really gone now. Apparently, if you simply heat up the sorghum kernels, they'll pop, and you can eat them like popcorn. It was so interesting, I had to try it. Cool it down, cool it down. And it turns out, sorghum popcorn is just like popcorn. Except tiny. For more info, go to bobsredmill.com outside, and remember to enter to win an assortment of prizes. That's bobsredmill.com outside.
4: What's remarkable here is that, really, none of this should have happened. Even though elite-level athletes are training under extreme loads... It's rarely the professional that is bouncing from doctor to doctor trying to figure out what's Absolutely. wrong with them. The... Dr. Robert Amreen, the... a sports physician in Missoula, Montana, who specializes in treating overtrained athletes, gives the I example of one of the Olympians he works with.
6: I'm a high level, Olympic level athlete. And he would always uh, entertain me because I'd ask him what he was up to. And he's like, oh, I'm going to take a nap. And I was like, well, geez, it's like it's four o'clock in the afternoon. He's like, yeah, I usually nap between three to five o'clock. Then I get up and I kind of socialize for about an hour. And then I go back to bed and get like 13 hours of sleep, then wake up. And he probably trained 35 to 40 hours a week through cross training, strength training, etc., But at the end of the day, he also slept 14, 15 hours a day. Um, And he never really had problems with with the overtraining type of concept because he had adequate time to rest. He had really nothing else in his life except his sport. With this
4: in mind, it's easy to see why overtraining syndrome began disproportionately plaguing the ultra running community. Which, especially 10 years ago had little professional infrastructure, and was largely made up of amateur athletes trying to juggle everyday life with training for 100-mile races.
6: On the flip side, I, I got a phone call for a consultation once from a, a man who had seen every doctor that he could possibly think of seeing, and he was desperate for help. And just listening to his story, I asked him, well, what, what's your goals, What are you, what's going on in your life? And he said, well, I'd really like to run Western States 100. I, this is a big goal for me. And at the end of the day, I said, well, how long are you training per week? What are, what's your running schedule? And he said, well, I'm averaging between 100 and 150 miles a week. And I said, well, what else is going on in your life? And he said, well, I've got uh, two kids under the age of five, and I uh, just got promoted at work, and I'm an executive for a high-level corporation. And the final answer I asked him is, like, well, how much do you sleep? And he said, two hours a night. And that's it. I was like, well, I think we found the problem.
4: What Dr. Omri illustrates here is that it's rarely the training itself that tips an athlete over the line from non-functional overreach into full-blown OTS. Rather, it's the accumulation of stresses outside of training that does it. An athlete performing at the very edge of their ability needs everything else to be perfect. Getting enough sleep, eating enough food, and staying removed from the everyday pressures of life. Put another way, when you're walking a tightrope, every gust of wind risks knocking you down. And Corinne, she was facing a storm. First, there was the boyfriend.
3: And during this, I also, like, I was dating a teammate, and then we broke up, and we weren't very good about breaking up.
4: Second, moving out of the training center not only increased her sense of isolation, but because she now had to pay her own living expenses, money was suddenly an issue she became constantly anxious about her finances. The anxiety itself was another heap of stress, but even worse was the way she dealt with it. She sacrificed her nutrition.
3: I was living a poor vegetarian lifestyle, I would say, at the time. Like, not a very smart vegetarian. Um, And I was probably eating a diet that was, like, too low in carbohydrates and too high in fiber and um, not enough fat and not enough protein.
4: Despite needing to take in hundreds more calories than she was eating, Corinne didn't feel like she was starving herself. This has to do with a quirk of biology that begins to show itself as an athlete progresses towards overtraining.
2: One of the things about exercise is, one of the things it does is, is it actually kind of sharpens the accuracy of your appetite signals. People who are getting exercise are far more likely to uh, eat a little, just unconsciously eat a little bit more or a little bit less, depending on whether they've exercised or, or a little bit more or a little bit less. But that, at a certain point, when you're really, really training hard—in other words, when you're on the verge of overtraining—that uh, breaks down. And and you know, just the the act of going and running for three hours, you, you burn a lot of calories. You come back, you just don't feel like eating. Uh, and so you've got this double whammy where your calorie burning is through the roof, but your desire to eat uh, is is lower. And, you've, and yet you've got to try and shovel in uh, this sort of rather extreme amount of food.
4: It should be no surprise to learn that chronic calorie deprivation is linked with OTS. In fact, a recent study by Belgian researchers at KU Leuven that pushed a group of cyclists into non-functional overreach made a startling discovery. Basically, they took 18
2: cyclists and they put them through a sort of simulated Tour de France, so three weeks of uh, unwisely heavy training.
4: Their goal was to see how the effect of ingesting synthetic ketones, a type of fuel your body only naturally makes when it is near starvation, aided in recovery. Half of the cyclists in the study received three ketone drinks a day, and the other half took a placebo drink. After three weeks, they ran some tests
2: and the cyclists who were doing, who had the ketones were able to produce about 15% more, or to, to sustain about 15% higher training
4: load in that third week. In other words, rather than becoming overreached and losing steam, these athletes were actually improving. And while it is unclear exactly why taking ketones had this effect, one thing that immediately jumped out of the study had to do with how much food the two groups ate.
2: By the third week, the people who are just doing the normal the normal thing they're no longer managing to replace all the calories they're burning they're training super hard and they're and and they're actually uh, eating about 800 calories per day less than they're burning and this not surprisingly you do that for a week uh, you, you're going to be in trouble uh, the ketone group on the other hand their their caloric intake kept increasing. So their their training got harder in the third week, and they ate more. So they were actually eating 4,200 calories a day in the final week, whereas the non-ketone group was eating 3,500 calories per day.
4: Somehow, taking ketone kept the body from suppressing their appetite, despite the intense training, and kept their hunger levels in line with their true caloric needs. Now, no one told
2: them, eat this or eat that. This is just what they chose to do. So there's a couple big questions. One is, Why does taking ketones three times a day lead people to eat more? And the second is, is the positive effect we see, is the apparent sort of defense against overreaching, is that just because they ate more? And if so, maybe we can get some of the same effects just by being more diligent about not dropping into that that sort of zone where you're so fried and cooked that you just can't manage to or you don't choose or don't want to, to eat as much as you
4: actually need to. But Corinne, of course, wasn't taking ketones. And she was training as hard as an elite male skier while subsisting on a slim diet of vegetables and grain, her caloric deficit snowballing over months of training. Add this to the depression, sleep deprivation, the pressure to perform, financial anxiety, social isolation, and relationship stress. And the only pipeline Corinne was on now was the one straight to overtraining syndrome.
3: Although training might not have been too much, even if it was close to too much, adding any of those additional stressors to that create like the perfect storm To like spiral from overreaching, which is like an action, to the state of overtraining syndrome, which is like a final destination. It's not, you don't, you don't overtrain, you, you end up there.
4: Corinne continued to train through the winter, but her problems continued to mount. She kept getting respiratory infections, developed a persistent anemia, and couldn't perform at her normal level she failed to make the national team she knew her olympic dreams were in jeopardy and unless she did something drastic she was done
3: um i was like i don't think i'm going to be in the sport next year like i was starting to recognize that like although i was like not oh, like not only like physically Like, not only that I was was emotionally unhappy, but I was, like, physically, like, realizing that I was, like, not in a good spot.
4: So she asked for permission to return to Montana Montana. to reset Um, and train from there.
3: And I raced that winter, and being on my own schedule and training a little less, I started to actually race a little bit better. Um, But that was short-lived, which is, like, very, very common in overtraining syndrome, is that you have these periods where you can race really well or perform really well on workouts and then you have these like major slumps.
4: Her few good days became fewer and the slumps got worse, longer, more severe.
3: I would tell people like I feel like a six cylinder engine who can only use four cylinders, like at, at the highest level. Like that's all I can get to is four cylinders. And there's this like extra depth that I know I have or I have had that no isn't there or I cannot access. And that's, you know, what that whole like what that sensation was. It was just like, yeah, like you have no there's no energy, there's no spunk. It's this kind of like deep and it's not like this surface level fatigue, like, oh you did a long run yesterday and now you're tired today. It's like it's deep. It's like it's deep in your muscles and it's deep in your body. And um you get a good emotional cry in sometimes, like you go for a run and then you just start crying for no reason, you have to have a little sit down. Like, you'd be like out in the woods running, and you'd just like need to take a sit-down to cry for a little while.
4: But despite everything telling her to stop, slow down, and rest, she'd wipe her tears and continue to train. In August, Corinne entered the first round of Olympic trials, and did well enough there to make it to the next round in October. If she could just hold it together, she still had a shot at becoming an Olympian. But by September, she knew she was done.
3: I basically told the, the national team that I would not be continuing with Olympic trials and that I was sick, is what I called it. I said I was sick, um, and that for my own health, I would be taking time away from the sport. And that's what I did. Like I cut, I like quit cold turkey in like the middle of Olympic trials.
4: Corinne had devoted her entire young adult life to realizing her Olympic dream but she never competed in the biathlon again.
3: It's not like going to medical school where at the end of it like you're a doctor. Like as long as you don't like do something really weird like you're you're a doctor. It's, you know, same, you know, like and like you put 4 years in, you come out with like this thing. You put 4 years into making an Olympic team, you put a lifetime into making an Olympic team and if you didn't make the Olympic team, you're like you're not an Olympian. And so Like you have that weird gap in your resume where you're like, what were you doing for eight years? And you're like, oh, well, I was skiing in a circle with a rifle.
4: Researchers don't fully know what happens within the body when it reaches OTS or why it's so hard to come back from. There's a number of competing theories having to do with parasympathetic predominance, oxidative stress, dysregulation of the hypothalamus, and something called catecholamine excretion. But root causes, and fancy names aside, it does appear that something becomes permanently altered in your physiology. Dr. Amrine likens this to what happens to the body during famine.
6: The theory is then you're basically going into a safety mode of sorts where your body thinks it's starving to death and you have to figure out a way out of that predicament. I mean, our bodies are so good at adapting and trying to survive. Um, You know, through all the famines, every aspect of our life, how we're programmed is to survive. And so it's now trying to figure out how do I survive through this time frame of of induced kind of starvation of sorts.
4: Dr. Halson suggests that there might be some form of psychophysical trauma that prevents an athlete from pushing themselves so hard again.
5: Your body was in a very bad place, and it says, I don't want to ever go back there again. And it will almost make the individuals feel tired and make it difficult to do what they would normally do. Just as protection,
4: Alex Hutchinson likens it to putting your body in a constant state of high alert.
2: Eventually, what seems to happen, so you're you're, you're putting your body into a state of alarm, into you know ramping up the fight or flight system, and then it's adapting to be able to handle that sort of stress. But at, at a certain point, the alarm just stays on. And it's like, well, we're getting pummeled so frequently and so severely, we're just going to leave the fire alarm on all the time. We're going to have, we're going to be in fight or flight mode, uh, you know, permanently. And that your body just can't sustain that. Um, so that's that's a kind of hand waving explanation. I wouldn't necessarily say it's, you know, quote unquote science, but that, that seems to be part of what's happening. Is you're just you're, you're you're pulling the fire alarm so frequently that it just never goes off.
4: There's currently no cure for OTS, aside from absolute rest, with no guarantee that your body will ever return to its former performance levels. And one of the major difficulties for athletes and doctors remains how to catch overtraining before it reaches OTS. Elite athletes have to constantly push themselves right up to the edge of the cliff, extracting every ounce of fitness from their body without overdoing it. But there's simply no objective measure to point at that says you're at risk of falling off except maybe that's no longer true. Now uh, just to,
2: to to go on a little bit I'll just say that, you know they mentioned a bunch they, they measured a bunch of things and 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 one
4: one of the things they measured was appetite hormones. The recent ketone study Alex described earlier may have accidentally found a signal to warn an athlete that they are on the verge of overtraining. There's something called g- growth differentiation factor 15,
2: GDF15. 15. It's a stress-induced hormone that Basically causes you to decrease food intake because you're 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 just stressed out, and its levels were higher in the non ketone group, and they started to climb before there was any signs of overtraining. So one of the things that the the researchers suggest in a speculative way is, wow. Maybe this is a, a kind of the smoking gun that indicates overtraining is on is, is on the way. You know, there could be a, it could be correlation, it could be causation, it could be coincidence, it could be statistical randomness. Like so, the you know all options are on the table at this point. Uh, what all they have right now is is this sort of intriguing pattern that suggests maybe GDF15 is is one of the
4: the keys at the heart of this mystery. To be clear, the study wasn't specifically looking at this hormone, and was exploring non-functional overreach, not overtraining syndrome. But if athletes can take a blood test that shows their GDF15 levels are raised, that could be the kind of specific, objective test that convinces them that they need to back off before it's too late. We all know, okay, you know,
2: your legs are dead, your performances are declining, you need to back off, you need to manage the stresses in your life, blah, 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 blah. Um, but it's very hard to do that when all the medical tests keep coming back saying, "Oh, you're fine. There's no signs of any problem. Uh, you know, other than your performance is going down, but we don't know why." And if we can say, "Well, yeah, here's here's this marker. Here's this blood marker that suggests you're on the verge of overtraining," maybe that will give give the athletes what they
4: need. After walking away from the Olympic trials, Corinne re-enrolled in college. If she wasn't an Olympian, she decided. She was a student. She quit training completely and would only join friends on runs or skis if the pace was conversationally easy and That wasn't just for a psychological break.
3: It felt terrible <laughs> like I think it took eighteen months before I felt fresh again um, and i I like distinctly remember like running with my then boyfriend now fiance. Like, just running in Bozeman, like, in town, and, like, being like, holy shit, I feel fresh. Like, I, like, this is what freshness feels like. Like, I have not felt this in years.
4: Eventually, Corinne got back into sports. And today is not only a coach, but, believe it or not, a professional ultra runner.
3: And this spring, for the first time ever, I was like, I think I'm ready to, like, be a, like, a quote-unquote serious athlete. Um, whatever that means. Um, But I'm willing to, like, finally focus again, and I think that's kind of one of those final pieces of this whole recovery process is that I've kind of mentally recovered from, like, that, what, you know, kind of was a traumatic experience and changed kind of my whole outlook on, on sports.
4: But even so, OTS has stayed with her.
3: Like, I'm still not the athlete I was. And like, that probably sounds weird because I'm like a successful ultra runner, but I like, there's a reason why I don't run like really competitive 50 Ks because I don't have the upper part of my engine. Like I've never gotten that back. Um, And so like a hundred mile race, like I can suffer through because that's something that I, I have got, like I have those capabilities, but it's, there's no, there's no timeline of recovery with OTS, you may never get better. And uh, that's, that's, I mean, that's not great.
4: (laughs) If there's a silver lining to overtraining syndrome, perhaps it's this. It forces you to reevaluate your goals, to decide what's truly important. If you've reached OTS, you've had to have dedicated an incredible amount of time and energy to your sport. OTS gives you the chance to step back and ask, what did that dedication actually mean?
3: As, as I am one to spiral, I was like, people are going to be disappointed in me, my parents are going to be disappointed in me, my coaches, my friends, like I had all this like false external pressure that was really all internal. Um, and then as soon as I, as soon as I like pulled the plug, I had the most like intense sense of relief it didn't make me a quitter and it didn't make me a less valuable human being and it wasn't tied to my self-worth um and like those are lessons that i've been able to take from that too like coaching kids who are like stressed before races and you're like are your parents still gonna love you like is your sister still gonna love you am i still gonna love you and uh you're like yeah okay like it doesn't matter how the race goes or how the season goes because like Your self-worth is not tied to it, and it it took, I think, stepping away to realize that my self-worth as a human had nothing to do with me as an athlete.
0: This episode was written and produced and the music composed by Robbie Carver. It was edited by me, Peter Frickwright. It was based on the article Running on Empty by Megan Brown. Michael Roberts is our editorial overlord. This episode was brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, helping athletes attain proper nutrition by providing them proper ingredients. More at bobsredmill.com. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. We'll be back next week.